You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. I'm Ankit Panda from New York. And this is Prashant Parmas Warren in Washington, D.C. How are you today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? It's uh, good to be back. I'm doing well. And um, for our listeners, uh, I think we're keeping our promise from before. Uh, we do have Shannon Tiazzi, our editor-in-chief and resident China expert at The Diplomat, back on the podcast. How's it going, Shannon? Always good to have you on. Good. It's been too long. I love joining you guys. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun the last time we did this, um, and it's good to have you on. Um, we recently talked about the Belt and Road Initiative uh, without you, so I hope you'll forgive us. Um, but to make it up to our listeners, um, we do have Shannon on today to talk about something that we've discussed on this podcast um, quite recently, which is um, Taiwanese foreign policy. Uh, but more specifically, um, we're actually pegging this podcast to a recent development, um, which was um, on June 12th, or just earlier this month, uh, Panama announced that it would shift diplomatic recognition from the Republic of China, uh, t the government in Taiwan, in Taipei, to the government in Beijing of the People's Republic of China. Um, so that was a pretty important development. It leaves Taiwan with just 20 countries that recognize it and have normal diplomatic ties. And uh, this really goes back to the issue of um, the erosion of the diplomatic truce that existed between the two Chinas since at least 2008, when Ma Ying-jeou of the KMT in Taiwan had reached a sort of an understanding with uh, the Chinese government of Hu Jintao. That truce lasted effectively until last year. Um, and uh, Shannon's been following this pretty closely. Um, I think you wrote first about this truce breaking early last year, Shannon. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping you can help our listeners kind of contextualize uh, just how significant this um, trend, I guess, at this point is. I mean, really, the Panama case is uh, significant uh, given the scope of that relationship and what uh, Taiwan is losing. Taipei obviously reacted quite negatively to the news um, and to uh, China's move there. Um, so, you know, where is this coming from, Shannon? And, you know, is this at all surprising what we've seen? Um, I, I mean, obviously it's, it's a blow to Taiwan, um, but I don't think it was really a surprise. Uh, clearly, if you look at Tsai Ing-wen's remarks after this happened, um, Taipei knew that this was a, a possibility, um, that this was coming. And according to Tsai, they did all of they could to try to dissuade Panama from taking this step, but ultimately weren't able to. So uh, I'll give a little background on the diplomatic truce that you mentioned. Uh, interestingly, Panama was actually one of several countries that were reportedly hoping to switch their recognition from Taiwan to China all the way back in um, 2009. Mm -hmm. This was the period Ma Ying-jeou, who was elected on a platform of pledging better cross-strait relations um, and a better relationship with China, had just been elected and sworn in. And that was really the beginning of this so-called diplomatic truce, where China reportedly was refusing offers to switch recognition from Taiwan's diplomatic allies, uh, including Panama. And in a very interesting case, uh, the Gambia actually severed its relations with Taiwan preemptively all the way back in November 2013. But China didn't agree to establish ties with the Gambia until early 2016, in a period that was after Tsai Ing-wen had been elected, but before she had been inaugurated. And that was, for Taiwan watchers, a pretty interesting signal from Beijing. It had held off for over two years you know, neither China, Republic of China in Taipei or People's Republic of China in Beijing had formal diplomatic relations with the Gambia during that period. And then 
Tsai Ing-wen is elected from the DPP, which Beijing is much less comfortable dealing with given its history of um, supporting Taiwanese identity as opposed to a Chinese identity. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a shot across the bow for Tsai Ing-wen. This is what you can expect to happen if you don't toe the line. And Beijing's bottom line, they've been very clear, is Tsai Ing-wen having to very overtly embrace the 1992 consensus, which holds that there's only one China. Right, uh, and she famously didn't do that at her inauguration to Beijing's yeah. satisfaction. Yeah, so. she, she came about as close as she could have given her domestic political constraints. She essentially said Taiwan recognizes the fact that there were important cross-strait meetings in 1992 and pledged to uphold the status quo. And taken together, those two pieces could imply um, that she is not going to do anything to undermine the 1992 consensus, but she never came out and said that she supported it, mm-hmm. which was did not end up being good enough for Beijing. Mm-hmm. So um, clearly the signaling that Beijing was trying to send by recognizing the Gambia right before her inauguration um, was not enough to force her to take action um, in the way that Beijing would have wanted. So in December of 2016, Taiwan lost another ally when uh, Sao Sao Tome and Prince Peace uh, recognized Beijing. And now Panama is the third to to do this in, you know, a a year and a half, roughly. Um, So it's pretty clear now that the diplomatic truce is no more. Uh, the question is, how many of these allies is Taiwan going to lose, and what does that mean for Taiwan? Right, right. Um, you know, in, in, a, in 2007, I believe, you know, like uh, Costa Rica ended its ties with Taiwan, um, and then I guess uh, Chen Shui-bian back then had to kind of shuttle to the region to kind of shore up those uh, relationships. Uh, do you see something like that in the cards for Tsai Ing-wen? I mean, she was recently um, in this part of the world um, meeting with a bunch of these countries. Um, but, you know, what are the Taiwanese going to try to do to prevent this from getting any worse? Yeah, that's the interesting point because her government has been very firm that they are not about to engage in a, what some people have called a bidding war with China over these diplomatic allies. Uh, There's a history, particularly in the early 2000s, of Taiwan and China both dangling large large age packages in front of these countries, which are generally smaller, less developed nations, um, and saying, if you recognize us, essentially we'll pay you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And um, Tsai's government has said, we have no intention of doing this. We are not going to engage in this checkbook diplomacy, as it's sometimes called. So the attention has really turned from basically buying or paying to keep these diplomatic allies. And a lot of people are now calling for Taipei to expend more energy on its relationships with larger countries, which are all unofficial relationships, but arguably more important for Taiwan. Uh, for example, its relationship with the United States. There's no official diplomatic recognition there, but it is a hugely important relationship for Taiwan, whether you're talking economically, um, diplomatically, the United States often speaks out on behalf of Taiwan despite the lack of official diplomatic recognitions. And obviously there's the defense element. Um, That being said, 
I also don't want to downplay the importance of Taiwan's existing diplomatic allies. Um, they provide a pretty rare opportunity for Tsai Ing-wen to host summit meetings in Taipei, and particularly for her to travel abroad and be feted as a world leader in a way that Taiwan can then display to its domestic public and have appear in the global media. And ironically, Panama was actually the site of Tsai Ing-wen's first trip abroad after assuming office. And it's these trips to Latin America, the Caribbean, South America, that allow Tsai Ing-wen to transit through the United States, where essentially she will have a catch a connecting flight in somewhere like Florida or California or Texas. Mm -hmm. And while she can't actually meet with administration officials, generally um, members of Congress will meet with the Taiwanese president, uh, academic influential think tankers will meet with her and talk with her. So it does provide a level of engagement with the United States. If we imagine a hypothetical world where Taiwan were to lose all of its diplomatic allies, or even just the diplomatic allies in Central America and the Caribbean, those trips would arguably no longer be possible, and that would be a large blow to Taiwan. Right, right. Um, so Prashant, I want to uh, you know draw you a bit into this. Uh, we've talked about this before, um, but you know, I mean, we've seen a fairly muted reaction, I guess, from the Trump administration on this, which is, you know, kind of remarkable given that the Trump administration drew the three of us on this podcast back in December after it, uh, you know, obviously we had that call between President Tsai and Trump, uh, President-elect Trump then. Um, so, you know, what do you make of the uh, U.S. reaction to this and how do you think the United States might maneuver here? Yeah, I think I think the you characterized it pretty well, which is that um, there was a standard uh, reaction from the Trump administration officially. Um, and uh, the the thing that made the most headlines and generated the most buzz was Tillerson was asked about the Panama episode um, at a House hearing. Um, and it was, his response was, you know, Taiwan's position within the U.S. one China policy and the one China policy itself will have to be evaluated as time goes on over the decades. And I think that comment uh, didn't ne wasn't necessarily controversial in terms of the broader context in which he was speaking. But uh, there were some DPP supporters and other Taiwan advocates who's, who were quite fearful um, about the signaling that there could be some wavering or potential change in US policy and Taiwan status within it uh, further down the line. I mean, that that's pretty predictable um, in terms of the, the broad scheme of things. Um, but I'd say, you know, given the fact that you're seeing that Trump and his team have been pretty inexact um, about some of their language surrounding a lot of issues, including the South China Sea, um, as you and I have both written about, um, Taiwan is not where you want to mess up when it comes to language. And I think that was, you know, not very helpful. And I think it also, you know, crystallizes what um, the broader problem, right, which has been you know, where is the Trump administration in terms of U.S.-China relations? We've seen we've seen wild swings um, mm -hmm. between potential confrontation and toughness to sort of a, a, a more amic amicable relationship based on, you know, dealing with North Korea. But, you know, at just uh, four hours ago, in, in, in a sign of how quickly things can change or potentially change, you saw Trump tweet out, you know, about North Korea and how the Chinese haven't really changed a lot um, when it's come to North Korea. And, and this is um, on on the sort of um, on the week where uh, the U.S. and China are having their first ever diplomatic and security dialogue. So you, you can see that uh, this issue is playing into 
a much broader, uh, bigger picture in U.S.-China relations as well. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up that Tillerson hearing. Um, and, and, you know, you actually uh, told me about that. I actually missed that Tillerson had talked about the one-China policy there. But, I, you know, I went back and watched the video right before this podcast. And it's interesting because the way Tillerson talks about one-China, uh, he really presents it like it's an open question of debate right now behind the scenes mm-hmm. between the U.S. Yep. and China, right? He says the question is, is the one-China policy sustainable for the next 50 years? He talks about how for the past 50 years, the one-China policy is allowed for this, you know, productive relationship between the United States and China, allowed for tons of economic growth, um, obviously. Um, And now it's, you know, it seems like it's an open question of debate, which is, again, interesting because, um, you know, the U.S. and China are about to meet with a a Tillerson-Mattis and their counterparts from China are about to meet tomorrow to uh, go over some of these questions. Um, I guess, uh, you know, Shannon, uh, taking it back to you, um, you know, how do you... Do you see any real role, um, you know, for the United States here in kind of shoring up Taiwan's position? Obviously, there is a quite a vocal lobby in Washington, D.C. in favor of, you know, closer ties with Taiwan um, based primarily around things like democratic solidarity. It's an island of 23 million people living under a successful democracy. Taiwan has definitely shown off its liberal democratic bona fides in, in recent years um, since its transition uh, from autocracy to democracy. Um, and that's, you know, really led to a kind of profusion of support, especially as relations between the U.S. and China start to become uh, more competitive than cooperative in many spheres. So what do you think the United States might might look to do next? Well, one thing that the United States has traditionally done is speak up on Taiwan's behalf when it wants to be involved in an observer capacity at international meetings. So, for example, the World Health Assembly, um, ICAO, things like that, where Taiwan is not a U.N. member state, so it can't partake in these meetings as a full member, but there has been a precedent for Taiwan being invited as an observer, and at least it can communicate with these international bodies and um, you know receive the information that it needs to comply with best practices in global health and civil aviation. The United States has still been doing that, but clearly it doesn't make enough of a difference to either force Beijing to change its calculus or these organizations to essentially cross Beijing when Beijing has said, you know what, no, let's not send Taiwan an invitation this year. But the gesture is still important. Mm -hmm. I think probably the most important thing the United States can do is really lead by example. Uh, If the United States is pursuing, for example, trade talks with Taiwan and looking for a closer trade relationship, that's going to encourage other potential partners um, such as Japan, potentially India or Southeast Asia, which are the targets of Tsai Ing-wen's new southbound policy, uh, to think, okay, we can do the same. The U.S. has kind of paved the way and we can now follow in their footsteps. And then obviously you have the defense question, um, arms sales to Taiwan, which is important both you know, practically and strategically for Taiwan's defense, but also symbolically. There's a huge tendency by the media and pundits to look at these arms sales and say, did the dollar amount of, of this sale go up or down from the last one? That's how we're going to gauge whether or not the U.S. is still committed to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And reportedly, the Trump administration is working on putting together. It's the first arms package to Taiwan of this administration. A lot of people are going to be looking very closely to see 
how much and what platforms the U.S. is willing to offer and what that says about U.S.-Taiwan relations. Right. And one of the concerns there has been that the U.S. might release this package at an opportune time uh, to annoy China, which uh, the Taiwanese don't want. They don't want to be used as a bargaining chip, which has been one of the lingering concerns that we talked about back in December um, after after the phone call and some statements by uh, Trump about how he sees Taiwan, um, and especially you know with his obsession on North Korea and attempting to get Chinese concessions. Um, in fact, you know, if there, if we were to read into his latest tweet about North Korea, it does suggest that he might be looking to apply some sort of leverage at this point um, after China has tried in his view. Uh, but Shannon, you know, you mentioned um, a new southbound, which I think is uh, something worth delving into as we talk about Taiwanese uh, foreign policy. We had a very good um, cover issue in our uh, magazine at The Diplomat on this um, by Bonnie Glazer and a few co-authors uh, taking a deep dive at, at what Taiwan can hope to accomplish with this new policy that targets um, essentially economically hedges its over-reliance um, on, on cross-strait trade, looking at uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia. Uh, so Prashant, you know, I mean, uh, you obviously watch Southeast Asia quite closely. Um, from your perspective, I guess, um, you know, how um, how are Southeast Asian countries um, receiving, uh, you know, the Tsai Ing-wen agenda in the region and and something like the new southbound policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... Um... What Chen talked about is is the right way to view it, which is that you know the, the Southeast for Southeast Asian states, um, there's no doubt they view it as well that the Chinese have an integrated approach uh, to handling Taiwan, which is you know as these diplomatic recognition switches are going on, um, the Chinese have also been restricting Taiwan's international space, um, and that includes not just restricting what Taiwan can do and what other international organizations and countries do with respect to Taiwan, but also individually pressuring um, some Southeast Asian countries by using China's growing uh, economic leverage, right? So that's sort of the, the main big picture context. Um, I think the, the DPP government um, and Taiwan has, has long been aware of this as it strikes up uh, some of its relationships uh, with countries, including those of Southeast Asia. And so, you know, if you if you talk to those folks who are involved in, in, in trying to implement this policy, they'll say they've been very careful in how they're casting the policy. They're not casting it purely in strategic terms. If you look at the substance of the new southbound policy, it's not it's not pitched in terms of anti-China terms, right? It's it's looking at things like culture, people-to-people -people links, tourism, um, and also economic linkages um, as, as parts of that. So I think Taiwan has been very careful about how it's trying to advertise this because it recognizes the fact that Southeast Asian countries don't want to feel the pressure, and they're already um, feeling the heat from China in terms of its economic leverage. So whatever Taiwan can do to try to facilitate how these countries can better relationships with it, um, the better. All right. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, that actually, you know, all of this kind of brings me back to a question, um, which is, uh, you know, Shannon, you kind of began this by talking uh, when you were discussing size inauguration, the 1992 consensus, you talked about domestic politics in Taiwan, which I think, you know, gets overlooked in discussions of uh, Taiwan's geopolitical position and its foreign policy quite often. Um, and I guess the question that I have uh, for you, uh, and maybe this will, you know, close us out today is, um, you know, where are things really sitting for the Tsai Ing-wen government domestically right now? Obviously, on the world stage, um, things have gotten difficult for Taiwan with uh, the perception that the United States might look to use it as a bargaining chip, the loss of three important diplomatic allies. Um, obviously, the economy has been struggling for um, a while now, and, um, you know, a new southbound might fix that, it might not. Um, but where where do things uh, sit for the Tsai government domestically, and uh, do you see that kind of um, 
potentially tying her hands or I guess uh, forcing her to take some sort of um, you know dramatic action, potentially a reversal on her uh, position on the 1992 consensus down the line for economic reasons or something like that. Um, how How significant is the domestic picture here? Well, obviously, for any politician, the single most important issue is domestic politics. And that usually means economics, because that is the general public's top concern. Um, can I find a job? Can my children go to school? Will they be able to find jobs? Can I feed my family? Um, that sort of thing. And as you said, Taiwan's economy has been struggling lately. Um, it's, it's kind of caught in the same trap of really slow growth that most of the developed world is stuck in right now. And obviously, its reliance on mainland China is troubling to a lot of Taiwanese who worry that this is essentially a recipe for handing over Taiwan's sovereignty once and for all. Um, so Taiwan win actually, although the, in international media, it's the cross-strait relationship that got all of the attention, she was really elected for her promises on domestic issues, uh, for her promises not just to bolster the economy, but help address issues of inequality, uh, which often gets tied up into cross-strait relations because there's a sense that, you know, big businesses and rich business people are the ones benefiting from cross-strait ties and the average Taiwanese is, is suffering. You know, a lot like the debate the U.S. is having over globalization right now. Uh, and, you know, also lots of, of issues in Taiwan's domestic governance that I won't go into too much right now mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> to spare our listeners a, an extra half an hour of this podcast. Um, these are all very deep-seated structural issues that were never going to be easy or quick for tying wind to fix. Um, so I think she's performed domestically pretty much exactly how you would expect, which is there were very high, perhaps unrealistically high hopes for her when she came into office. There's a honeymoon period, and now her approval ratings have dropped into something that's you know fairly typical for a democratically elected um, leader around the world. So the interesting thing is that when Beijing makes moves such as establishing relations with Panama or barring Taiwan from going to um, UN-sponsored meetings as a, an observer, it, it actually helps Taiwan domestically because the Taiwanese are very defensive of their international face. And when they see Beijing cutting into that, they feel attacked. And there's a sort of rally round the flag effect. And Tsai Ing-wen gave some very spirited comments in response to Panama's decision, arguing that China is manipulating the one China principle to pressure us. Uh, she's threatening the Taiwanese people. It's undeniable we're a sovereign country, you know, very tough language and that resonates well with the Taiwanese public and there's not a lot of domestic pressure on her to do an about face and embrace the 1992 consensus because of that dynamic right people don't want to see their leader effectively coerced into doing something because Beijing is applying pressure like this I would say actually the opposite is more likely, um, and this is similar to what we saw under Chen Sui-bian, who was the only previous DPP president. He actually came to office pretty hopeful about cross-strait relations and wanted to engage more with Beijing economically, and Beijing 
essentially shut him down and was applying some of the same pressure tactics as it's applying to Tsai Ing-wen. And what happened was Chun, to shore up his base, swung to the other extreme and started floating the idea of, you know, maybe I'll have a referendum on whether or not Taiwan should, you know, try and join the UN or, um, you know, steps towards independence that really upset Beijing. But essentially the reason he's doing it was because Beijing created an environment that was really tough for him and he needed to bolster support with his base, what we would call the deep greens on Taiwan. And the way to do that is to play up Taiwanese identity, um, Taiwanese independence, even in, in a very extreme case. So I think that's the danger that Beijing needs to be aware of, is if it continues down this path, it might actually backfire because of Taiwan's domestic dynamics. Right. Yeah. And um, and for listeners, I guess, uh, you know, I should plug that uh, a podcast we did a couple of years ago with um, J. Michael Cole on the Sunflower Movement and civic nationalism in Taiwan. Uh, you know, we talked about this too with Tsai's election, which was that it was kind of a, a crystallization of the uh, the Taiwanization trend in the country. So, uh, you know, I mean, those political forces aren't going to evaporate, uh, I don't think, because of economic circumstances. So um, it seems like a lot of this will remain constant for Tsai. Um, yeah, and I think mm-hmm. also just to just to add to Shannon's points on the domestic political developments, I think those are important to keep in mind because, you know, it, it, it may seem like a long time, but it's just been over a year since Tsai has been in office. Um, and the next Taiwanese election isn't until 2020. So, you know, there's a lot that can happen. There's a lot that can change. So it, it it's worth putting a lot of this into context as we analyze and go forward. Yeah, absolutely, Prashant. I think that's a, I think that's a good uh, cautionary note to uh, end this podcast on. Um, Shannon, thanks as always for coming on and sharing your insight with us. Sure. It's always a blast, guys. Absolutely. And uh, for our listeners, if you uh, haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. And if you are a subscriber or a longtime listener and you like what you hear, please leave us a rating on iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with more.